welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. As always, I'm your host, Jack, and today I'm joined by co-founder of Eagle Games, co-founder of Forbidden Games, Glenn Drover. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really cool because you have had such a substantial history in gaming, whether it's through Eagle Griffin or through your current gig with Forbidden Games. And then before that, you also had some time with the video game industry. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, I started in the video game industry in 1990 uh, with Microprose back when uh, Sid Meier was doing classics like uh, Railroad Tycoon and Civilization and uh, it was it was kind of a magical time in the early days of the video game industry. Yeah, that's kind of amazing because I, I'm thinking back to my original computer gaming and I was actually, I don't know, I think the first computer game that I ever played was Warcraft 1. My older brother taught me how to play and how to load it via DOS. It was a, a magical time in gaming, and that is even a little bit after what you were doing there in 1990. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 90, they were still inventing the genres. I mean, real-time strategy didn't exist, and you know none of those genres existed. People were just creating games uh, that they thought would be cool, you know, flight sims and strategy games and a lot of turn-based gaming. And when did you actually get into the board game biz? I guess professionally, when I founded Eagle Games, uh, the or Eagle Griffin was originally just Eagle, um, and that was in the year 2000. Um, after my stint at Activision, um, decided I wanted to design games instead of just be on the business side. Um, so I founded my own publishing company so I could publish my own games. Were you just like, I am done with the digital gaming thing. I need to get out and start working on these physical cardboard components. Or was there just a, a good transition point in your life? Like, that's a pretty substantial career change. I mean, I know of a lot of people that have made that jump from video games to board games. But the, there usually is some, I guess, uh, uh, factor that's involved with making that jump. Yeah, I guess the the impetus was really that I wanted to to design games, and and you know even back then doing PC games or video games, the budgets for those games made it impossible uh, for someone without substantial funding uh, to start a publishing company. So I figured, you know, analog gaming was coming back even back then, and I figured that was something that I could do um, on a scale where it was actually doable. And it's really cool because, you know, you're starting in video games in 1990 when it's kind of a, a nascent industry, especially with some of the cool stuff that was happening on the computer at the time. And then you get into tabletop games in 2000. And sure, that's that's after Catan has already come out, but it is long before the kind of modern era of the hobby game. So you got to see this whole industry grow. Were you like initially designing games on your own and then decided to publish your own games? Is it that you wanted to uh, design games and that was the only path that you could find to get your games to the market? Like what what was the, the main drive here for you as a publisher slash designer, which doesn't seem that unusual now, but feels like maybe it was unusual then. It, it really was. Um, you know, there were a few people doing it, but the the even even compared to 
uh, you know, Kickstarter didn't exist. So you really had some barriers to entry. Um, you had to have all the money in your pocket to do a, a run of games, essentially. So, you know, in, in, you needed a, a fairly substantial stake uh, to start a publishing company. But yeah, it was it was my impetus was to publish my own games. I had some game ideas and, um, you know, I'd been one of those kind of gamers from the earliest days of my childhood. And I just was really fired up to publish and design games. Well, so you... it, was, it was kind of a wacky thing because I'd never done it before. And it's it's tremendously risky <laughs> to just go off on your own and start a company <laughs> when you haven't ever done it before. So no it was, kidding. It's probably pretty insane, actually. Yeah. Well, that that's exactly what I, I was thinking about is like you're – you probably have a fairly successful career going on and then saying, you know what, I think I'm going to get into the not exactly lucrative board game market in order to do something that I haven't really proven myself as a, a as an asset yet as a designer. And I'm going to be the publisher taking the financial risk on this designer that is myself. It either takes a a lot of foolishness or a lot of confidence or a combination of the two, but it seems to really have worked out. Well, it, you know, it was a lot more foolishness than confidence. And uh, <laughs> yeah, my first few games were actually pretty awful uh, looking back on it. I, I, you know, I kind of went to school on, um, on that dime to learn how to become a better designer. Cause my, like I said, the first couple designs I did were not memorable. Uh, one was called, War, Age of Imperialism, and then I did a Civil War game uh, with miniatures, and miniatures was kind of the hook for Eagle, right? So before everyone in the world was doing that, um, there were, you know, Fantasy Flight had done, um, you know, a, a, a couple of games with miniatures, and I think uh, Hasbro had just brought back um, the um, uh, Milton Bradley uh, strategy games and had done... Um, uh, Battle Cry, I think. So there were a couple of companies kind of experimenting with it, uh, but it wasn't nearly as common as it is now. China wasn't really a factor for cheap production. You had to produce things in the U.S. So it was it was really risky and really kind of a silly thing to do. Man, I didn't even ever think about that, that there was a time where it, we just didn't have the supply lines and the channels that allow for that cheap Chinese production. And the idea of miniatures being created in the u.s is preposterous to me but of course at some point <laughs> that was. must have been the, the only way it was and, and i actually had to kind of seek out a a plastic injection molding guy who had never <laughs> done miniatures before and he was like game to try and we you know it, it was really kind of an era of exploring and trying things and uh but again you know with this kind of risk of failure hanging over your head. And we actually built up a little bit of debt trying to do very expensive American tooling. And that was part of our challenge was, um, you know, financing the inventory and the tooling and all the expensive manufacturing here in the U.S. Now, I introduced you as the co-founder of Eagle Griffin, or I guess at the time, Eagle Games. Did I get that right? Or was it a sole proprietorship? Um, it was actually an S corp uh, legally, but yes, I was the only founder. Okay, so you were founder, the capital F on that, <laughs> deciding to take all the risk on yourself. You didn't even have someone on the side who's like, yeah, you know, I'll I'll, I'll help support this. Um, so, 
I guess getting a good baseline for you before we move on into the entire world of tabletop gaming that you've created, how about some highlights? What 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 part of the country did you grow up in? Um, I'm uh, born and bred in the Chicago suburbs, uh, where I still uh, reside. And um, yeah, we have managed to, despite working for companies based in California and Washington, uh, Maryland, um, I've always lived here. Okay, so from the burbs of Chicago, you're growing up, and are you actually playing tabletop games in your household? Are you playing with friends? Like, I, I know everyone gets exposure to the classics, the the monopolies, the lifes, that kind of stuff, but what was your exposure to the, I guess, more niche side of tabletop gaming growing up? Being from this area was, was um, helpful in the sense that uh, D&D was founded in Lake Geneva, uh, which is just across the border in Wisconsin. And my family actually vacationed there uh, growing up. So I used to just kind of wander into the dungeon hobby shop and Gary Gygax would be there. That is amazing. Yeah, all those guys were just, they just kind of published the white box version of D&D. And, um, you know, I, I, I was in there even before I knew what D&D was. And I, you know, I was a war gamer. I, I had a ton of Avalon Hill stuff and SBI games. And uh, from from a very early age, you know, I was from like maybe the early 70s, 1972, 73, I was starting to do war gaming. And and then uh, maybe 77, 8, I was I was started uh, playing D&D. So, yeah, it was really kind of a wacky coincidence that I just happened to be um, geographically close to these guys who helped found a portion of the industry. You know, I've always had a reverence for Gary Gygax, like pretty much everyone who's ever touched a, a table with any intention of gaming. But I, I didn't know as much about the intimate details of the Lake Geneva founding until recently. I, I read a Kotaku article that was all about his mm -hmm. late wife and kind of her attempts post his death of honoring him and holding on to the rights to Dungeons and Dragons and the, the series of controversies that have uh, have uh, resulted since then. And it, it really seems like you could just have endless amounts of books about the, the legacy, the life of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons and the, the actual, I guess, the 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 legacy of the game itself and its impact today which i don't know like is immeasurable but it's insane for me to think that you were just you know a guy going there visiting you were <laughs> a nerd kid who had all of your war game miniatures and you decided you know what i'm going to pop into this shop and oh hey there's old gary hanging out and he's playing <laughs> games doing dungeons and dragons i guess that's a thing yeah, and they and they would talk about their their current game they were running, their campaign that they were running, because you know they obviously played and and you know it just it was kind of crazy. Once I got into it, I'm like, wow, those yeah, those are those guys, and they 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 invented <laughs> it, and you know, and I, I went back afterward, and you know, I was kind of stand back. I never walked up to them. I never was you know had that kind of courage to to just walk up to adults and these guys. They were probably in their twenties and. And, um, you know, ask questions or, you know, ask them anything about the game. But it was just kind of neat to just just see it in its earliest days. So then you go through the career of video games, you get into founding Eagle Games, and then you actually 
at a certain point after making some some real, I guess, uh, rough around the edges games, uh, that'll be a fair way of uh, saying it rather than um, saying that. <laughs> anything Terrible else game. about them uh <laughs> you you managed to start getting a little bit successful with eagle games so like what was the the turning point where you were like hey this is a game that that i can be really proud of not just then but also now that you can look back to fondly and be like yeah that that was where i started showing talent as a designer yeah i, I think it was right toward the end of you know it took a while and uh, it was probably railroad tycoon that i designed with martin wallace and uh age of empires 3 um which was published in 06 um even after i sold eagle actually it was published under uh the moniker of, or under the imprint of tropical games because i'd already sold eagle um by then you know 2005 so it took me about four or five years to really see what other designers who had real talent and and put out good games i think puerto rico was a game that kind of opened my eyes uh, to the kind of design that I really admired. Because um, the previous designs I'd done were, they felt more like games from the 80s, you know, the stuff I grew up on, mm -hmm. the access kind of games and those kind of things. Um, so they weren't great modern games. They were fine. People, Some people liked them, but, um, you know, I wasn't up to the, you know, the talent and the, the quality that was being produced, um, you know, with games like Catan and, and Puerto Rico and any other uh, Euro games. Right, right. And Puerto Rico is a fantastic showcase for that. It just has such sophistication and elegance and the kind of, uh, I guess, Spartan presentation. And there's an economy of decisions in the game. I, I can see how that would make a, a big impact on you. What was the decision to sell the company? Um, it was actually the debt we'd run up um, trying to grow the company. And we'd, we'd been very successful. The, the revenue stream was good. It was like our first full year, we did a million dollars in revenue uh, <sighs> for a, a, you know, a small startup company. And then the next year, two million. And the third year, we did about four million. But half of that was this weird product that had got kind of fell in our lap that was a uh, – um, a PC poker game and poker was blown up in 04. And, you know, so we did that and sold, I, you know, my connections in the video game industry, we sold, you know, uh, a couple million dollars worth of that in six months. So that kind of padded our revenues, but the core board game business was kind of sitting around $2 million. And, um, you know, we just, it was financially very challenging to build enough inventory. We had about almost a million dollars in inventory and about a half million dollars in debt other than that. So it was just really becoming a burden to manage the funding and the constant need of, you know, financing and our bank bailed out on us. And I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I, I did this. It was successful enough. And I, I just was like, okay, let's sell the company and I'm going to go back in the video game business and earn a living. <laughs> a good thing to do at a certain point. So right. you were mentioning co-designing with Martin Wallace. One of the most notable recent controversies that's been a real ongoing thing has been the Martin Wallace Steam, Age of Steam thing. Were, oh, you, yeah. were you involved in that like back in the day? I mean, the Age of yeah, Steam I mean, was 2002, it, right? It, it actually began with, this, with our railroad uh, tycoon game that we designed together because... 
in order to do it, um, he had some rights that were um, that he felt anyway. I don't know if I agree with him that, that for the design because it had a mechanic in it that someone else had de- had developed mm-hmm. uh, the pick, pick up and deliver kind of thing with the colored cubes. And so he had someone else in there that he was paying a sub royalty to, and we felt like okay, we want to buy um, you know this design, and so Eagle Games, um, you know, I basically negotiated a contract with Martin uh, to own that design, and we paid him a work for hire um, to to do half the work uh, on the game. So, you know, after I sold it, I think that the the, the subsequent owners. Um, got into a, a an issue with him because he still owed us a, a, a or owed Eagle a design under that contract and he never provided it. He goes, oh, he, you know, his response was, well, the company got sold, so I don't have an obligation anymore. Right, right. And yeah, that's not what the contract said. So they got into some disputes, and then that kind of snowballed, and you know, the uh, the steam thing kind of I think got got pulled into it because of the railroad tycoon. Um, you know, ownership of that design, which is really similar to uh, Age of Steam, which is, I mean, I actually wanted a, a more playable version of Age of Steam. That's what I went to Martin with that idea. I said, well, I've got the Railroad Tycoon, you know, video game license. And this Age of Steam game that he had, um, it was very popular among hardcore gamers, but it was it was really too much for uh, the, the kind of the more mainstream gamers that we were trying to attract. Right. And so I basically said, hey, you know, do give me a design. We'll license, you know, a work for hire for you to give me a design that's similar and has some of the same mechanics, but it's much more playable. And so that's the game that he submitted. And it wasn't quite finished. So I finished the design on it and made it, you know, uh, got it to a finished state and we published it. And then he had a, I also bought a game called, um, oh, I forget a struggle of empires. I, I, I you know, under the same contract, I bought the, out the rights to that game and then used some of those mechanics in a new version of conquest of the empire. And then he owed us a third game. So all of that kind of started planted the seed for this current controversy. To me, it's almost like a, a legendary controversy at this point. It's something that you run into on forums or on Reddit or something, you know, like the what's up with this game Steam and then this parallel game Age of Steam. And, it, you know, one of these has Martin Wallace's name on it, but he says that he has nothing to do with it. And this is the the true game. It sounds like at this point that it's been resolved. Martin Wallace came out and said that he's worked things out with Eagle Griffin and they've come to a mutually satisfactory conclusion and that came out on board game geek so i'm happy that whatever happened uh has been solved but once again you know you're you're kind of at the beginnings of things man you're you're (laughs) seeing things shake out you meeting gary gygax or at least seeing him in a corner playing games and then you're also at the the birth of this you know feud that's uh that's kind of like a a post beatles lennon mccartney kind of deal here yeah, it's it's funny because you know uh, Martin's a great designer, um, but I, I you know I, from what I understand he can be feisty. And yes. uh, <laughs> Rick Stewart, uh, who bought Eagle, is also feisty kind of a guy. And I, I it doesn't surprise me that the two of them didn't agree. Uh, but I saw it, I was at Gamma actually, and I read that they had come to terms, which I think made a lot of sense. You know, because they had the. Eagle Griffin was running that that um, Steam or Age of Steam uh, Kickstarter, and 
a lot of fans of Martin's were complaining. And uh, I think it was just a smart move, a good business decision to kind of bury the hatchet and come to some kind of a, of a mutually beneficial financial agreement. I don't know the terms of it. I haven't talked to either of them recently, but you know, it just made sense. And now you are back into the board game biz. You decided I'm going to make a living for a while. I'm going to do this video game thing. And then I want to not have money again. So I'm getting back <laughs> into board games. So I, I guess like what was the major decision to once again, dip your toes into the cardboard realm? Well, it's, it's a passion. Um, and I, I did learn a lot, um, a lot about what, not only game design, but on the business side with Eagle. So this time around with Forbidden Games, we're really focusing on uh, this growing, um, you know, audience of gateway gamers. There's more people coming into our space than ever before. And, you know, they'll play Ticket to Ride or Catan and, and then look for something else. They want the next thing. And everything I see on Kickstarter, at least a lot of what I see in Kickstarter these days, is aimed at the hardcore gamer. It you know it's got a lot of miniatures and a lot of complexity and it's you know really good games, but not necessarily something that you know mom will play with the family or that the neighbors will come over and play. So you know I think there's a, a, a fairly large business opportunity to create some you know beautiful accessible uh, games that have some great mechanics but are easy to learn and and, and get into. Did you take that into consideration when naming your company? Because I was thinking about this when <laughs> I originally like saw Raccoon Tycoon. Like, I'm going to be honest and say that I reached out to you guys based off of me just browsing the internet and I saw Raccoon Tycoon. I was like, what is this? On the name alone, I have to investigate. And then it turns out, oh, this looks like a really cool game with a fantastic art style. Then I see Railroad Rivals. I'm like, man, these, these are really beautiful uh, games with great aesthetics and they they look like they are approachable and friendly and inviting and then i see the name of the company and i'm like forbidden games i mean come on <laughs> i gotta imagine that these guys set out initially to make these heavy duty miniature games that are meant to only be played in basements anything that can be described as dank is the appropriate area to be playing forbidden games so was that like a, a, an ironic thing to you or was there some attachment to the name or am I just way off? And for some reason I'm a weirdo who's not making the connection here. No, no, you're right on. We, it, it is ironic. Um, when you go to name a company, you, you, you know, a million different ideas pop into your head and there's so many game publishers out there. And if you don't do something, at least it's a little bit humorous or a little bit different. It, you get lost in the shuffle. So yeah, we, you know, it was a long list of names for a company, and that was the one we kind of landed on, knowing that, it, that we were doing every, anything but, you know, that kind of an, uh, of a, you know, a feel. It's, but we we also created the, kind of the logo of the company, and I don't know if you if you saw it. It's kind of this Goonies cave, you know. It's got this sense of adventure, but you know, Goonies isn't isn't you know a, a niche kind of thing. It's it's something that you know kids relate to and and so you know having this idea of a company that's kind of adventurous and 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 a little mysterious but still fun and approachable it wasn't as weird as we you know 
as you might think. You have, I mentioned, railroad rivals and Raccoon Tycoon. Like when you were starting up the company, did you already have some designs in mind? Did you just say, I'm going to create a publishing company and then I'll start working on design from that point forward? Like what was the, the actual meat and potatoes plan that you had in place when you were getting back into the biz? Um, yeah, we, I, like I said, when I was working at PopCap, um, uh, I was approached by a couple of, of buddies, um, who were like, Hey, do you want to design a game with me? And I thought, yeah, you know, um, EA's just bought us and I was, I was winding down and, and, uh, didn't know what I was going to do next. So I was going to take some time off and I thought, well, yeah, I really love designing and I, I've got nothing going on for the next year. Why don't I, uh, you know, kick, kick around at some, some design ideas. And one game became two, became three. And pretty soon I had this backlog of games. And initially I didn't think I would start a publishing company to sell them or produce them. I was just going to do what most designers do, which is license them to an existing publisher. Um, but because the industry is in a really weird place, even a few years ago where, there are so many designs and so many games and the publishers don't necessarily, they're not looking for new designs. Um, and so I had a few that, you know, sniffed around and, and played raccoon tycoon or played, um, actually Eagle Griffin, uh, was, was looking at raccoon tycoon and they just had too many other things going on. So they, they kind of not turned their nose up at it, but basically said, no, this isn't our thing. We're doing more, you know, gamer games and we don't really want to do this game right now. So I, I said, well, you know what? These are really pretty good games and I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and, and start a company. And it kind of made sense from what I, you know, I said a few minutes ago, why we think this the business plan actually can work. And Forbidden Games, that was co-founded, right? That, that wasn't was. straight up. Okay. Okay. At least I got some accuracy here. <laughs> Come on. I, I do a little bit of research, <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, clearly sure not when... enough uh, to begin with. But uh, so who's your partner in this? Is it just a business partner or did you really want to set out to design games together? You know, why go partnership this time instead of being the main man beforehand? Um, well, being the main man didn't work out so well the first time. So <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, so. I, I I I did learn a few things. So my partner is is Jason Kapalka, who was one of the founders of PopCap, and um, so he and I were. It was one of those kind of design duos where we were both um, working on a game together, and you know, I kind of this is what kind of was the genesis of Forbidden because. I was like, well, if we make this thing, and I was pretty excited about the about the, the the concept, and I was like, if we make this game, we still need to find a publisher, and then we, you know, I'm like, oh, we should just do this ourselves, but then we need marketing and we need sales, and I'm like, all right, we, we need to start a company. So I, I I flew up to Vancouver where he lives, and you know, we sat down uh, about a almost two years ago, and you know, I kind of pitched him on, on the idea. I, I had kind of a a, a rough business plan. I said, here's the, the units I think we can sell. And here's kind of, you know, what I think this will look like. And he, he was on board, you know, he had done well with the, with selling the company to EA and he invests in several small gaming related businesses already, um, in the PC world or the, or the app world. Um, and he has a, 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 a chain, a small chain of nerd bars in Vancouver and now Toronto that are really awesome. Uh, so he was already doing this. He was already kind of, 
you know, financially backing and managing um, a small group of businesses. Okay. And then as far as your guys' aesthetic, let's get back to that because, you know, even though I, I think there's some contrast, which in a way I think contrast is a way of highlighting certain things, you know, between your your company name and the, the actual presentation, you got Raccoon Tycoon and then you have Railroad Rivals and then the Extraordinary Adventures Pirates is coming out. It's along the way, right? That, that one's not already out and available for people to buy? Not yet. Uh, we, we actually were just uh, working with our factory in China to begin production. So, yeah, this week we handed off uh, the, all the finished files and there it's in the works. It'll be out for Gen Con. So do you have an intentional, I guess, old-timey shtick, a, a turn-of-the-century kind of love that you have? The, the visuals very much are representative of this, like, early 1900s late 1800s americana of course you know you have the railroad barons with railroad rivals you got the the tycoons which every single animal in there looks like an anthropomorphized animal who could easily be in a cartoon version of i don't know oh brother where art thou and it's (laughs) amazing and was like an aesthetic that you intentionally sought to like start making games that kind of fit into this genre or you know like uh, did they just happen to have that similar early 1900s late 1800s vibe no no i mean i'm a history nerd and so i get excited about projects not just from a mechanics point of view for gaming but also theme and look and feel and you know art direction um, so, you know, for Raccoon Tycoon, I, I don't even know why it occurred to me to do the anthropomorphized animals thing, but it struck me that that might be cool. And, and I started doing lots of research and I, I was, I was looking at, uh, you know, the Victorian era and looking at, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the age of, you know, literal ra- railroad tycoons and the Gilded Age and all the costumes and, it's just it's a fun to, it's fun to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with research and um, you know I, I just read a lot of history and it's so it's it's one of those things that really gets your imagination fired up and you get excited about doing a project when you can you know really fall in love with the aesthetic and the period and uh, so that yeah that game specifically was even though it's animals and it can look a little almost childlike it's 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 also a really interesting period in history. Yeah, yeah. And even the the Pirates game falls into this kind of treasure island aesthetic, which would have been popular fiction of an earlier time. I mean, not that pirates aren't cool now. And of course, we have the like whole renaissance of pirate fiction that came out of the, the Pirates of the Caribbean. But when I think of pirates as genre fiction, I think of it as a very old timey thing. You know, Peter Pan had this fascination with pirates as a a fictional work it was you know you're going to have these pirates as these you know exaggerated characters and then you have all kinds of adventure island and you know all all sorts of fiction and and celebrations surrounding this as, as a kind of older genre fiction and so like i i love all of this overall cohesive aesthetic even though each one feels individually unique and raccoon tycoon like that thing 
what struck me the most about it, uh, beside it being a very good game and a game that you should be very proud of, it exaggerates the characters in it so much more when you have them as creatures and not that they're all the same creature. You're not all representing things with raccoons. You have raccoons and cats and dogs, and it just makes it so much more imaginative and cohesive in a way. And I I think that really serves the game quite well, even though in no way are you needing animals like you're you're not trading raccoon feed you know you're you're not um acting as though you're a dog and you're you're you know having to bark or anything or you know they you're not adding mechanics that necessitate these animal characters but somehow i can't imagine that game without them yeah thanks for saying that i i, I felt strongly uh that that was the case and uh, when I was pitching it to Eagle, one of the things they wanted to change was that they wanted to. They're like, "Hey, let's retheme this. Like, we like the mechanics, but let's make it a space game. Uh, you know, colonization or what?" And I'm like, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, "There's so many of those, and there's you know, that's I wanted something unique uh, about the game, and 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 again, look and feel and theme and and the art style." Uh, the historical period, all those things are integrated to give you a feel and, a, and, a, and an emotional response to any form of entertainment, whether it's a, a film or it's a book or it's, you know, whatever kind of visual medium. And, you know, that's what's great about gaming and game design is you get to explore all these different facets instead of just the, the, the mechanics of the game. Well, let's actually talk very briefly about the game design here itself. And were there any challenges or or particular things that you wanted to tackle in designing this game? Because commodity trading isn't exactly a new mechanic. There have been plenty of commodity-based games in the past, but you really came up with something that's unique. And what's even better is that you came up with something that plays really quite well at two players as well, which, you know, for the the genre of game is kind of unheard of, or maybe not unheard of, but I I haven't found it hit the sweet spot of feeling like a, a, a full breadth game uh, at such a low player count uh, as this, while still being flexible to play at those higher player counts. So what were the, the challenges that you were working with on this thing? So, so the thing that kind of sparked the design was my wife and I went to uh, some friend's house for pizza in a, in a game, and they said, hey, we, we play this game called Settlers of Catan. Do you know it? And I kind of chuckled and said, yeah, I've heard of it. And, uh, you know, but my wife had literally never played it. So I was pretty excited. to. I'm always trying to pull her into my world and, and have her play games. And I thought, well, this will be a good one. It's a good gateway. It's 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 you know kind of an elegant design, even though it's not. It's kind of you know getting a little older now. There are other games that are maybe a little bit better, um, but I thought it was a great way to get her into gaming. And we played and um, had some pizza. And on the drive home, I asked her, you know, hey, how did you like the game? Fully anticipating that she would be raving and saying, oh, we really need to play that some more. Or games like it and. And she didn't. She basically said, I hated it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I, I just, I was like, what? I'm like, you hated it? I'm like, why did you hate it? And her response was that she unfortunately didn't roll well over and over and over again. And when it was her turn, she waited patiently for her turn and she got, she couldn't do anything. And 
I was like, yeah, that's that's true. I, you know, she had worse luck than most people would, but just you know, sometimes you'd have a turn where you couldn't do anything. And I thought, well, gosh, that's true. What if I designed a game that had some of the good stuff that Catan has, you know, some commodities and other things like that. And yet you could always do something fun on your turn. And so that was really the genesis was for the mechanics and the design was you can always do something on your turn. So I thought, well, let's pick, you know, three, four, five actions that you can do on your turn that matter. And, you'll do one and it'll move around the table very quickly. So there won't be a lot of downtime. So that was kind of the, the initial idea for the game was just a, a fairly straightforward game that would appeal to people who are familiar with Catan or even familiar with Monopoly. You know, it's just meant it was meant to be an economic game that was approachable. Right, right. But it's also like a, a gamer's game. Like it, it is a very satisfying game, even though it is approachable. Like there, there's there's no classifying this as like, oh, this is a gamer's game. Uh, or I'm sorry, uh, there, there's no classifying this as like, oh, it's a gateway game, but it's something that you'd move on to for more complex games. Like it, it still has compelling and satisfying gameplay. Yeah, and again, I think that that's one of our missions with the games that we're designing. We want to not only put our arms around the new gamers, we want to include them, but we want all of our games to be where gamers and non-gamers can get together at the same table and have a really fun experience. Now, so it's got stuff that gamers, you know, enjoy, but it's it's not overwhelming, right? It's it's you can I've taught the game many many times, even in in loud convention settings. And you can get people, you know, started on that game in, in like three minutes. You can just sit them down, <laughs> give them the basics, and they're going. And that's the, the trick. It's that you want an elegant, streamlined game design that has depth, that you can make interesting decisions that, you know, is replayable. And that's that's not easy. It's much easier, frankly, to make a big, complex game that has all kinds of stuff in it because that doesn't have to, you know, do anything but everything well i have to ask i i cannot let you go without asking about this whose idea was it to have paper money in the game was that something that you just wanted to piss people off with because <laughs> i opened it up and i was like yes paper money i love paper money but i know that there is a a very large contingent of gamers out there who are distinctly anti-paper money. So was that something that you were like, man, I gotta have this? Or was that like a concession out of the production of the game? Not at all. It, it was intentional. Uh, we, you know, or I felt strongly, again, for reasons of marketplace, that you need to have things that are touchstones for gateway gamers or new gamers. And again, Monopoly, with all its flaws, is the most popular game in the history of gaming, uh, other than maybe chess or, you, can, you know, whatever cards. But, you know, as far as board games go, that's it, man. And and everyone is familiar and, and has a an emotional, tactile response to handling money and feeling like a rich tycoon. And right, so, right. you know, the, the, the very name of the game is, a, is, is, is evocative of handling money. And, yeah, coins are cool, but they don't really fit that time period. And 
we got a lot of pushback on our Kickstarter. People going, I hate paper money, and you know, I would back this game, but you guys got to get rid of the paper money. And our response was, well, we're we're not going to do that. We will offer metal coins if you want them. You know, you can add those on. They we made some really beautiful coins, but we're also going to make paper money that's not crappy. You know, it's it's really robust. It's really um, it doesn't you know it doesn't crinkle or tear or it's really nice you know it's got a plastic coating and it's it's good stuff and that was our concession was we will make sure that this is not the paper money that you all hate because it's it, it you know it gets wrecked after you play the game once or twice and it works so well i mean it's it's thematic and it's also functional like the the amount of coinage that you would have to have and maintain it, it just wouldn't work quite as well. I mean, I, I love coins as much as the next person, but with the way and that that you're having to trade around money in this game, the denominations that you're dealing with, it's just so much more functional to have it this way. And I didn't even think about it from the perspective of having that touchstone for the the person who's only played Monopoly in their life and nothing else. And that's a brilliant idea. I love that you you commit in spite of that pushback. I think it is a better game for it. And it's also a better game for having that obnoxiously big first player token. Holy <laughs> cow. That is one of my favorite components in gaming at any point now. Like before this, it was the the Sauron totem in the Lord of the Rings uh, cooperative game, the Kinesia one. There was like a wooden totem of Barad-dur. That thing is amazing. But then all of a sudden I have this orange raccoon who feels like I could put him in a sock and fight off a burglar <laughs> with it. It's just, uh, it's the best. And, and, and the funny backstory to that is that it was a complete accident. Like, you know, all these other things I'm like, oh, you know, it was so well thought out and really planned. And this was a complete accident. Um, it, you know, why the factory contacted me when they were going into manufacturing and they're like, hey, you, you've got this, you know, this this component for the starting player marker. And, you know, we, we need the dimensions. And, and I was standing in my kitchen and I'm like, I just took, took my fingers and kind of <laughs> said, uh, I don't know, it should be about this big. And if it's going to be that big, it has to be you know, thick enough to stand so it doesn't fall over. And I just kind of wrote down the things and typed it and sent it off in an email. And when you put your fingers out, it, that doesn't look that big. It's I don't know what it is, four inches or whatever. That doesn't seem all that big. But when I got my sample from the factory, I'm like, oh, my God, what, what the hell is this thing? And I was going to tell them, no, 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 let's make it smaller. This is a waste of wood. This is, you know, the, the starting player marker is not that important in the game. And like you, I kind of had a revelation where I'm like, wow, this is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That, that thing is a showpiece and it's inviting and it's, it's fun and it's funny and it, it makes you want it. And I think that if you're dealing with a casual audience that you're trying to convert into the more, uh, gamer with a capital G, then it, anything that you can do to to invite players in and make them want to engage with a game like a big wooden raccoon <laughs> with a beautiful <laughs> illustration on it, then I, I think that may be literally the token. Yeah, it, it, it did work out. It was just, totally, like I said, totally serendipitous. But, you know, as soon as I actually thought about it for two seconds, I was like, oh, yeah, we, we need to keep this. And That's it, awesome. It, 
it's been something that a lot of people comment on. So you have Extraordinary Adventures Pirates on the horizon. And what other projects are we getting out of Forbidden Games in the future? Well, we have um, a working title for a dungeon crawl we'll call it a dungeon crawl drinking game even though it's not necessarily doesn't require drinking it's kind of a bar environment light uh anyone can play you know D D or anyone can play a role-playing uh fantasy role-playing game um that's where the monsters and the treasures and the rooms are all uh printed on um um what is it what's the word i want bar um coasters they're all on coasters, so you make a stack uh, of these things, and each room is three. It's the room, the monster, the treasure, um, and you you know flip them over, and you've got okay, here's the room, and the room has something funny that may, might happen, and there might be a curse where you have to see if you can uh, avoid it, but if you don't, you have to go to a table nearby and ask for food, or you know uh, buy someone a drink, or you know do silly things, uh, stand up and you know dance around, or all this crazy stuff. It's a social, uh, silly, fun RPG that you do. Um, you know you can do it in your kitchen, but it, it's kind of ideally meant to be played out where people can see you, and uh, everyone kind of walks over and wonders what the hell's going on. All right. We'll test it out at McGivney's here in Juneau, Alaska, not far from my house. I'm sure they'd love to have me in there nerding it up. They'd totally be down with that. Yeah. And and, and that's the thing. Like, you know, again, going back to our kind of mission, it's, you know, having people who aren't necessarily hardcore gamers experience what's fun about being a hardcore gamer and doing it in a way that's really approachable and really kind of lighter and more fun. So that's Again, very different from the other games we've done, but this is the the game that the founder, uh, my co-founder and I, had originally designed, and uh, it's almost done. We were going to have all the finished art complete by the end of next month. Well, Glenn, I feel like I could talk to you about a, a zillion things, and you could fill in those gaps in my my knowledge of board game history. You know, I've been playing since the time that I was playing Warcraft, Orcs versus Humans, at the same time I was playing HeroQuest, and then Dragon Strike, and then I was witnessing the beginnings of Magic the Gathering as it came to Alaska for the first time. I think around 1994, they didn't have beta, but they did get into unlimited and just witnessing all of this before my eyes but as I was growing up so I didn't have my adult mind reflecting on who were the people making these games and the important events and you have so much of that knowledge and I would love to explore that with you on another podcast so you will have to come back in the meantime where can people find more about Forbidden Games? Dub, 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 uh, forbidden.games. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Glenn. It has been an honor and a privilege. Uh, for me, too. Just absolute pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to come back anytime. As always, the Cardboard Herald is a completely free service focused on spotlighting games, gamers, and game creators. You can find all of our podcasts, including the Cardboard Herald and TCBH reviews, on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website. For more recommendations and reviews, you can also head over to our YouTube channel. We do not pay to advertise the show, so please continue spreading the word, following, liking, rating, and doing all the social media things. It truly does help us out a ton. If you'd like to drop us a line and maybe have your listener mail read on air, Find us on Twitter at Cardboard Herald or send us an email to CardboardHerald at gmail.com or click the contact link on our page. Once again, thank you for listening. I've been Jack for the Cardboard Herald and you.
keep on gaming.